Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. Think about what it would take for a slaveholder in America to go to church every Sunday Right. Or to take communion, you know, to 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 declare the, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ and then come right back to their property, see people suffering, sell off children, um, know that there is forced breeding of, of people. I mean, to do that and still feel like that in no way prohibits them from mm. coming unto the Lord's table. Something has to take place both psychologically and certainly spiritually to shape and misshape someone's discipleship to think that that is OK. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Racism. It's one of the most emotionally charged words in our vocabulary. How do we fight the sin of racism when some people don't even think it exists anymore and the wider Christian community seems divided about how to talk about it? To answer that question, I'm so excited to have author Chad Brennan and returning guest Dr. Christina Edmondson. Dr. Christina Edmondson is a higher education instructor, organizational consultant, and co-host of the Truth's Table podcast. Chad Brennan is coordinator of the Race, Religion, and Justice Project. Together, they co-wrote the book, Faithful Anti-Racism. And today, we are going to dig into some of their insights and personal history behind the book. Join me as I ask Chad and Christina, where y'all from? Man, well, I am excited to start this conversation. It's a very unique one for where you're from because we have two guests and not one. And we have a returning guest because she was, you know, so nice. We had to do it twice. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Dr. Christina Edmondson, how are you doing today? I am doing well today. And thank you so much. I appreciate a second invitation. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> yes, yes. And joining you is co-author of Faithful Anti-Racism, uh, Mr. Ched Brennan. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thrilled to be with you today. So the first question I'm going to ask is the question we ask all folks. We've asked this, Christina, but we're going to ask her again, too. But I'll start with you, Chad. Where are you from? So I grew up in the suburbs of Dayton, Ohio, mostly blue collar community, loving Christian family, um, was in the church two, three times a week, every week. So was blessed to grow up around a lot of solid Christians that love the Lord. So first, like when you think about that experience in date, just mm-hmm. paint us a picture for those that are not familiar with the land of the Flyers. Yeah, so real, real diverse city. Okay, you know one of the things that now I see looking back in hindsight is there's a lot of racial diversity in Dayton, but I didn't have much exposure to it when mm. I was there. I mean, I would see people in passing, and Dayton, like most cities in the United States, is very racially segregated. So mm. on my part of town, I rarely interacted with African Americans in Dayton. And honestly, I just didn't feel the need 
to really go there. So I had a few friends in my high school that were in other racial groups, but for the most part, I was pretty isolated. Right. And you mentioned when you previously would hear about, and you talk about this in the book, racial issues, you thought that they were exaggerated or inaccurate. Where do you think that conclusion came from? You know, I think for my story, a lot of it had to do with things that I observed and also things that I didn't observe. Hmm. So for me, I didn't feel like it was a high priority in part because the other people around me that I respected, admired, and loved didn't see it as a high priority. And occasionally I would see somebody in my tribe or community that was a white Christian that would stand up and say, hey, this is important. And they typically were, you know, not shunned, but they were, they were kind of looked at as either emotional or over the top or maybe even dangerous. Yeah. What changed things for you where you went from that traditional and even predictable view to something yeah. different? So it's fun for me. One of the most exciting things about this work is to kind of look back in hindsight and <laughs> see the Lord's hand at work in the process. There are literally thousands of little things that help hmm. me along this journey. A big part of that was relationships. Some of those friendships of color in high school and middle school were really beneficial for me, both in terms of helping me to see things that I that I was having a hard time seeing, also making mistakes. So unfortunately, part of my story too is having relationships where I was trying to be funny, a terrible reality that I, mm. I've seen in my own life. And also, you know, again and again, we observe in Christian organizations that we work with is oftentimes some of the most painful cross-cultural situations and dynamics are, are around jokes. Mm. And so I stepped in it at times. And then I observed in the pain of friends, you know, I was like, man, I did not intend for that to be as painful as it was, but I could see that there was pain in, in their eyes. And so those kind of painful experiences mm. of making mistakes, a lot of grace, but a pivotal moment was when I was a junior at Ohio State, I went on a short-term missions trip into Canton, Mississippi. It was a service trip. It just sounded like a fun thing to do with friends over spring break. And I didn't realize that a big part of that trip had a like kind of a racial justice component to it. <laughs> I was like, this sounds fun. Let's go do it. You know, work in this poor community, whatever. And then we got there and then the leader started talking to us about race in the United States. I was like, what? They took us on a van tour of the community and the leaders were explaining the racism they were still experiencing today in Canton, Mississippi. And I can still remember being like, what? Racism still exists? In the United States, like that was, it was kind of a revelation to me that it was mm. still like a big deal, you know. Um, didn't we get rid of all that during the civil rights movement? And so mm. that was kind of a beginning of having my eyes open. Got it. So th that was just one of many, 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 many things. But really, where the passion, the drive, so much of what really moves me in this space now came when my wife and I joined staff with Crew. I lived in the Middle East for a year, and then we lived for five years in Queens, New York. Nice. And it was really in Queens, one of the most racially diverse communities in the United States, that that's really where it began to really, you know, mm. have my eyes opened and um, really began to be challenged in my limitations, how little I knew, how much I needed to grow. Well, thanks. Uh, that's a great summation in history. And, and we're going to definitely unpack that some more. But we have somebody else on yeah. the, you know, the conversation. Dr. Christina Emerson, where are you from? <laughs> I am from Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, y'all know, I, you know, I love my city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where I was born and raised. That's where my mom and dad still live right now as we speak. And I think very much critical in, in shaping a lot of things about my personality and my humor and my enjoyment of people 
I think mm. I, I got that from growing up in Baltimore. Got it. Got it. You kind of talk about in the beginning of the book that God has a sense of humor in the fact that you would be doing this particular work. For sure. Uh, <laughs> where do you see the humor in it and how did it unfold that you would be at this place, you know, writing a book like this? Sometimes laughing to keep from crying. Right. And so mm. but but definitely humor. I, I think that only God knows the plans f- fully right of, of, of your life and all these dominoes that are going to fall and all these pieces that will come together. I would have never imagined that I would be as actively involved in research and practice around topics of Christians engagement with racism as I am today. Not because I didn't have an awareness of the faith. The Christian faith was put in front of me on a daily basis uh, growing up, largely because of my mother's kind of intentional discipleship. And racism was not something that I could really be shielded from as a kid, even though I was in a largely kind of predominantly, probably black homogenous context, racism was still very much a reality, even if I didn't have the, the words or language to describe it. I mean, I, I knew that race mattered. I knew that there were certain things that were um, certain privileges, certain expectations that were ascribed to people just based mm-hmm. on what they look like mm-hmm. and the perception of their race, for example. And so I knew those things were very real, but putting them together, I would have not thought that I would be in the work of putting <laughs> my faith and dealing with issues of racism together. Well, you're not alone in that. But I need to ask, how did y'all meet? (laughs) How did this happen? (laughs) Go ahead, Chad. Yes. I think it was three years ago. Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, incredible work in this space for many, many decades. And she has been a mentor for both of us. And so she had a gathering of leaders from around the country, which was a really rich time. And that was when I first met Christina and at that point, didn't even have an idea for it. it was later on that I reached out to her and you know, said, what do you think? And she was like, oh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and to Chad's point earlier that he said that I don't think either one of us were like, I want to write a book. I mean, that, that's like not something that I really want to do. <laughs> right. I mean, and because there are so many excellent books. Um, I mean, over the last couple hundred years, not even like in the last 25 years, hundreds of years of excellent books on this topic. But I, I think we just felt compelled to write a book that would be for the church. And so it's specifically talking to people who say, you know, the Bible is the word of God and I love Jesus because he first loved me. It's, it's written to, to those folks, right? And, and I count myself to be one of them. So the audience, I think, and us bringing to bear this multidisciplinary approach, I think was a unique opportunity. And so that's the background of how we connected. And then we've just you know, the world of Zoom. We've been working together for a very Uh, long time to create this. Why do you think this is an important conversation, an important read for folks to engage in now? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll throw out a couple and I know Chaz got some some too. (laughs) There are many, many reasons, actually. I mean, the the first thing that comes to mind is that systems of injustice, they kind of need like a a perfect storm. By perfect, I don't mean good, (laughs) but they they Mm. need certain ingredients in order to maintain themselves. Lamentfully, that includes things like violence and policies and, and the air of normalcy or invisibility. Mm. But but one of the things that it also needs is um, moral justification. You, you need a way, you need, you need something at work that helps people to feel still pious while the system of injustice is still happening. I mean, think about what it would take for a slaveholder in America to go to church every Sunday, right? Or to take communion, you know, to, to, to declare the, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ and then come right back to their property, see people suffering, sell off children, 
um, mm. know that there is force breeding of, of people. Mm. I mean, to do that and still feel like that in no way prohibits them from mm. coming unto the Lord's table. Something has to take place both psychologically and certainly spiritually to shape and misshape someone's discipleship to think that that is okay. Mm-hmm. And we, we have seen that story throughout um, the narratives of even some of America's most famous theologians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where it's kind of like, oh, it's a blind spot. I mean, that's a huge blind spot. Like the, the kidnapping, selling, and breeding of people is a mm-hmm. huge blind spot, right? So the church has been used to create a moral justification to either ignore, to be complicit, to downplay, or even to, in some heinous cases, to even support Um, Mm -hmm. through kind of uh, using theology to contribute to and to allow the abuses of people based on these categories called race. And so because our tradition, because our faith system, even if we say, well, that wasn't really my faith system, well, the name Christianity (laughs) Mm -hmm. has been used to Mm -hmm. do that. The other thing I would say is that Christianity has the resources to say something about and to Mm. do something about. We are a confessional tradition, but our confession is embodied. We are called to live a certain way, to do something with what we say we believe. And so while at the same time, I can look at the tradition of, uh, in many ways, Western Christianity and say, these are all the ways that Western uh, Christianity has um, been using the name of Jesus to subjugate people made in the image of God. I can also say that there are riches in Jesus's Christianity that he gives to his church Mm -hmm. for us to uh, dismantle and to resist the sin of racism. Those are the two things that come to mind quickly for me. Chad, what about you? You know, it's funny. I think Christine and I were both reluctant authors, right? (laughs) But two unique components that I think we were really excited and motivated to write the book about was one is the research. So a big component of the book is a two-year national research project we conducted in partnership with Drs. Michael Emerson and Glenn Bracey. And funded by Lilly Endowment, also in partnership with Barna Group. And so we conducted one of the largest studies that we're aware of in the United States in terms of racial dynamics in U.S. Christianity. And so we had this incredible mountain of data that we wanted to kind of look at from a theological grid. So in light of what we're observing today in the United States, how should we live from Scripture as Christians? We were really excited about that. So that would be the other. So in addition to kind of the data being unique, also a very heavy emphasis on action. And so we wanted to, you know, hopefully have a book that would allow people with practical action steps. Like, how do I make a difference? We're all, you know, very frequently talking to Christians around the country that recognize this is a biblical mandate, recognize the importance of this, but they don't know what to do. Hmm. And so- that was a big part of the motivation. Yeah, I guess if it's a tool, it's it's not just one tool. It's like a Swiss Army knife. Like you got a whole lot of things coming out of that little tool. You got mm-hmm. psychology, you got history, you got theology. And so I'm curious about the observation that was made that oftentimes Christians are less motivated to address issues of racial injustice, which is somewhat counterintuitive. Like when you think about the nature of the gospel, I'm curious about why you see that because it's almost like the polar opposite of that idea of Christians being less motivated to address racial injustice. I think it's super complex, like we were talking earlier. Uh, One thing I did want to clarify too is what we saw with our research was not that all Christians are less motivated, but particularly white Christians and then and Asian Christians as well. And um, to a lesser degree, Hispanic or Latino Christians tend to be less motivated to address racial injustice in our society, whereas African-American Christians 
tend to be more motivated than non-Christians. And, and that's an intensifying effect. So a white Christian is significantly less motivated to address racial injustice in the United States than a white non-Christian. So being a part of the Christian community for all kinds of reasons tends to demotivate people in this area. There, I don't think is a real quick answer to why that is a case. I think to really understand it, we have to understand the history of the white church. We have to understand the theology of the white church. We have to understand the racial dynamics in the United States. I think we have to understand some of the psychology that Christina was talking about earlier in terms of justifications and how we layer explanations for things, mythologies in the United States. And the way that white Christians frame the concept of race and approaching race is is incredibly complex. There's something to be said about the power of discipleship, right? So that point about the fact that non-Christian whites are more likely to see and affirm more accurately racism as a problem in America, Mm. (laughs) that is speaking to something about uh, discipleship within the predominantly white church. And even as I'm saying this, Chad says like the white church, I recognize that there will be listeners who hear that because they've been socialized. They're going to hear that and have a hiccup in their thinking as soon as they hear him say those words. Mm. The immediate defense, and probably I'm talking to somebody right now, the immediate defense is like, there's no white church. There's no black church. There's only the church. right? Mm. And I was like, and that's true. There is only the invisible church that Christ himself navigates and sorts through, right? That's true. Amen. But there is a visible church and we're speaking in sociological categories. I want to say that out loud to the person who's already trying to get off the road (laughs) with this conversation. And and the reason why I can call that out is because it is that programmed. It Mm. is that deeply socialized that we can sit back from a social science perspective and say, this is what happens when we start to have this conversation. You're going to think this, this, and that, and you're going to go here. And it's not because we, you know, we, we have any superpower, but the patterns are so ingrained right. and have been in place for generations. And so we should do something about it. Yeah, no, that's so yeah. true. And it reminds me, we can talk about, you know, the Reformed Church and the not Reformed Church with ease and know that there's still one church. And we know that these are just constructs and the ways that we engage that are different, that are helpful descriptors. But then when we put race in it, all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. No, no. And it was almost like something malfunctions. The other thing that was interesting about the research was the fact that black Christians were more committed to engage in racial justice than black non-Christians, which I thought was interesting. And Christina, I'm curious for you in particular, because you shared a few different dynamics of this story from, you know, instances of of being chased at school or, or just different ways in which you mentioned you felt the data and the and the data actually that the reports or the the research kind of gave words to a racial reality that you already experienced. Tell us about that and how, as you said, I love this line, you said, it it is black folks Jesus that has kept me from hopeless deconstructing or physical departure from the local church because I know Christ can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. Love that. So tell us more about your own personal experience and why that's true. Yeah, we seek out answers to things that we think really are problems. So Black Christians have been digging through the scriptures and Mm. creating songs and colloquialisms and expressions for generations in response to the lived reality in the United States. And so it represents the tradition that has something to say about this issue and actually believes that God has the power to do something about it. 
Mm. I would say that's one of the distinctions of kind of the historic black church tradition. And it is also a tradition that, you know, post-emancipation that in many ways attempted to worship with white identifying Americans, right? And then we have multiple narratives of them being pushed out and pushed out and pushed out. Even when we think about the black church today, it is a church that in many ways attempted to come together knowing that Christ has called himself a people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Like the black church is, is not saying that typically that there is a need for us not to be worshiping with people of other backgrounds. We just know that the history of literally being told to worship in the balcony or being de denied communion like Frederick Douglass. I mean, so it's a very different story. And so I think black Christians have looked to Jesus for their sense of identity, validation, and to fix problems that plague them today. A very immediate response, a very personal Jesus yeah. um, that is not aloof and far off, that is a present help <laughs> like today. But when I'm pulling these things out, I mean, every tradition has access to this, but depending on your experience and your stories, right? And, and honestly, uh, social oppression, we create a desperation to go into the text and to pull that out, right? And so when I talk to believers who are part of a persecuted uh, groups, they're desperate <laughs> to find God in this story of oppression. And they may sound similar to what I just sounded like, although we may not have the same um, ethnic identity or heritage, right? It was the social situation that created a desperation to dig into the scripture, to wrestle with it to pull from it the theology that is there to say something about injustice because they're experiencing it. When we come back, Christina and Chad will share what it looks like to be faithful in the face of racism and provide practical steps we all can take to move forward in a faithful, biblical, and God-honoring way. That's coming up next on Where You're From. If you're enjoying where you're from, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of where you're from. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited, customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And in just a moment, we'll jump back into our conversation with Christina and Chad. Before we do, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. 
They not only contain the talking points for today's show, but some links to learn more about Dr. Christina Edmondson and Chad Brennan and their research. You can find these links in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Now let's get back into the conversation with Christina and Chad on Where You're From. You know, one of the things that was really, I think, helpful is you actually kind of call out the fact that there are various theories about social problems and change. You refer to it as structural versus non-structural theories, right? And that as you looked in the data, there was a tendency to see even some of these differences, and especially from a Christian standpoint, how a emphasis on the non-structural theory could create different conclusions. And I'm curious, Chad, for you, as you think about your own development, have you seen that arc develop in your own life where you went, you know, maybe from one of those to the other? And could you tell us about that? So it may be helpful to define what we mean by the difference between structural and non-structural. So when we're referring to structural causes for racial disparities, we're referring to things like housing segregation or educational disparities or disparities in how criminal justice is handled in the United States. Those type of institutional things that are common day experiences for most people in a racial group. When we're talking about non-structural explanations, it's basically anything but that. So sometimes people will point to things like personal responsibility or differences in culture. They might say, well, this culture works harder than other cultures or that they value education more, those kind of things. So it's more of a personal role that individual decisions make as a part of what places someone in poverty or allows them to receive a certain level of education. In my situation, I think up until I was in my early 20s, if someone had pointed out something like racial poverty rate um, disparities or education disparities or criminal justice disparities and so forth, I would have given explanations around personal responsibility or maybe even pointed to families, family structures, those type of things rather than institutional dynamics that historically contributed to these realities in our society. So that's been a big part of my learning curve is to understand all of the factors that go into something like education disparities, for example, goes way beyond personal responsibility. If there's a farmer and their fields are failing, so the crops are dying, but they don't realize it's a microscopic insect that's destroying their crop. And so they have the wrong diagnosis for the problem. Well, they could do all kinds of things, but the crops are going to continue to die. It's because they don't understand what the underlying issue is. And I think that's one of the things that we consistently observe among Christians in terms of them trying to impact society. So if you have a misunderstanding of what's causing racial injustice in the United States, then you're going to be really ineffective at addressing it. And one of the things that we try to make clear in the book, too, is that as Christians, we are not going to effectively change our society if we can't effectively change ourselves and our own communities. Mm. So there's a log in your own eye aspect that we're trying to emphasize in the book. And that unfortunately, rather than Christian spaces being places of justice and true inclusion and leadership sharing and power dynamic, healthy power dynamics and all this kind of things, it typically is a reflection of society and then tragically, oftentimes worse than society in Christian organizations. Yeah, that's real. And the other thing that was really fascinating, because there's this big word, the word that is the first word in the title is faithful, right? And... I was intrigued about how you connected even the theological development and insights of Christendom and Christianity with this issue of justice. Could you break that down? Because I just thought that was really helpful. Yeah, I think we see that throughout scripture. 
Mm. that when people are spiritually set free by Jesus, there are social implications for their freedom as well. And that's why we don't always want everybody to get set free by Jesus. Even if we're really evangelistic, we really think about it, right? In the United States, there was a significant tug of war about uh, whether or not people would attempt to evangelize enslaved people. Why? Because there were some groups who understood that if this person is really my brother and sister in Christ, that I, if I'm part of the covenant community with them, I have covenantal obligations to them. Their suffering is my suffering. Their experiences are my experiences. And so let's fast forward up to today when their teenage son is threatened and killed. That is my son that is threatened and killed. So the covenant family has covenantal obligations and implications. And so all that to say is that deep, deep theological implications and spiritual implications but that doesn't separate us from the, the real political and social and yeah. practical implications as well. Another piece of this faithful anti-racism, you also talk about the cross and uh, the gospel being both vertical and horizontal in nature. And I think especially because some of the things that I've heard throughout doing justice work in the church context is often that we should be focused on the gospel. So, Chad, help us with that. Like, help us to think about why anti-racism is relevant to the gospel or not, or are we just adding something extraneous to what it is that we're supposed to be about? Yes, I think really so much, especially when it comes down to theological foundations for this work, comes back to what is the gospel. Hmm. And that's why we focus on it so much in the book. And my experience, both personally and then as I work with Christians around the country, is that very rarely do I come across a Christian that would argue against the idea that there is both a vertical and horizontal component to the gospel. So they would say, oh, yes, I know. It's not just about me and God. It's also about me and others. But the way that that gets worked out for different Christians is radically different. The Christian community that I was a part of, that I grew up in, it's mostly about me and Jesus or me and God through Christ. And then I'm called to kind of live, you know, out these fruits of the spirit and be kind to others and those kind of things. But it kind of ended there. It was mostly a relational one-on-one, love your neighbor kind of piece, but it didn't really extend to, you know, more systemic issues like justice and those type of things. It kind of ended there. So it was a message of silence in many ways. Like we, we're not talking about that. We're not emphasizing that. And so that's very common. I mean, as we've seen with our research is that that's a really common thing that we hear consistently as we do surveys or do focus groups around the country is sentiment. I don't think we should focus on social issues like racism. We should just focus on the gospel. And so the implication there is that, you know, these are either apart from or even contrary to the teachings of the gospel. All right. And you also lean into this space of racial trauma. Christina, in light of your background as a psychologist and a scholar in this way, but then also just as a person, you wrote this chapter primarily from your own experience. And I want you to just give us a glimpse of how, like from a personal side, what it was like to kind of reach into your own experience and kind of express this, but then also help us understand why it's important for the church to be thinking about racial trauma. Yeah. There are so many people throughout the history of in the States who have written these kind of grueling and beautiful accounts of their experience of racism. I tend to think it's a gift when people tell us their story. They really don't have to give us their story. And I made a decision to share portions of my own story in the context of this book, something that I don't often do. Even when I'm teaching, I don't typically use myself as an example. 
so trauma can feel like a set of lenses that we put on. Like when we have a traumatic experience, it kind of shapes the way that we see ourselves, the way we see the world, even the way that we see God. We can find ourselves asking questions like, is this how it's supposed to be? Have I done something wrong? But it also has an impact on our physiology, like our own bodies, like our blood pressure, right? Our physical health is impacted by the stress that trauma creates and our body experiences that stress. And so there's a number of resources that specifically talk about the ways in which racism impacts physical health, but certainly also psychological health as well, right? And so we can look in within the African-American community, for example, and look at the rates of anxiety disorders that we see in that particular population. And we can also think about the way that racial trauma impacts our spiritual health. And so when we're wrestling with this sense of the faith and what does it mean to forgive and what does it mean to endure and where did I get this faith from? And even like this whole movement right now, you have people who are interrogating, have I even been given the right Christianity? Is this a Christianity of the oppressor, right? Am I being manipulated by Christianity, right? Even the wrestling of those questions are oftentimes a reaction to experiencing very real racial trauma that have opened the door, sometimes to really helpful and necessary work, Mm. but also sometimes to really painful work that pulls people out of the church instead of towards God for answers. Yeah. And Chad, I'm going to just follow up on that. It says to acknowledge the harm and develop an anti-racist restorative justice focus. I'm curious, as you kind of share your own kind of journey and, and recognize and acknowledge, man, there were some things that I did that caused harm that I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. How is that important in the process of approaching this topic of racial trauma? Yeah, I think there's all kinds of baggage in terms of having any kind of superiority mindset to anyone else. You know, it darkens Mm -hmm. your soul. It pulls you away from God. It pulls you away from others. Um, It alienates you. It isolates you. And so I think as white Christians, and this has been part of my journey, as the more we understand about how racial injustice operates both in our own lives and in society, we have to wrestle with our own personal part of that. Like, how have I personally contributed during my 49 years of living on this planet? But then also the community that I'm a part of, how has it contributed to it? And that's a space we're not typically very good at, especially as American Christians. We don't usually think corporately about our spiritual lives, but the Bible talks a lot about our corporate spiritual lives. And so, you know, we have to wrestle with, to what degree do I have ownership for the people that are part of my nation or my tribe or my people group, my racial group? The great news on that is, and this has been something that I'm still very much in process on, but I'm so thankful for, is that Christ is the answer to individual Mm -hmm. sin and to corporate sin. And so, there's healing for both of those. And so, that's one of the things that really motivates me in this space is we can bring Christ into all of this and He can fix it all. So, we don't have to be afraid of corporate sin or individual sin or any of that. So. We should be charging in, not running from That's it. good. So good. One of the parts in the book that I feel like when I opened it up, like there was some sizzle, there was some some smoke that emerged is this chapter on do not rely on magic. This is one of those where it reads as a, a list of cautionary tales that oftentimes are almost traps that we can find ourselves falling into. Give us a couple of the types of magic that people think can happen and why y'all thought it was so important to write this chapter, because this one is is pretty fire. Mm. So one of the big ones, which kind of gets to this whole phases thing in my life. So phase one is indifference. Phase two was more about unity and about diversity. So that was where I was like, okay, so there's problems in the church. We just need to come together in the same room. 
So if we can just get everybody in the same space, we love Jesus, let's all get together. How hard can this be? Right? So I spent a good amount of time in my 20s and early 30s orchestrating cross-cultural gatherings. And then also I was a part of that whole like late 90s, early 2000s movement of like, we just need diverse everything, diverse churches, diverse Christian organizations, all that. So, you know, I was a part of that. But one of the things that we learned through that process is that just bringing people together in the same space does not always equal progress. In many cases, it equals pain and suffering, particularly for people of color who are required to put up with microaggressions and painful power dynamics and just all kinds of oppressive dynamics in Christian organizations. And so that's one of our magical approaches. So if we can just reach some kind of statistical threshold, then magically we're gonna achieve biblical community. But sadly, oftentimes that we've observed consistently over the last 15 years is that as the racial diversity increases, so do the problematic Mm. dynamics. And in many cases, I think one of the assumptions in that is that both people of color and white people are going to make good changes in those spaces and it's going to work out great. But unfortunately, what we tend to see is a much stronger change required on the part of people of color. So they're required to kind of adapt to white normativity and white ways of doing things. Basically, the people of color then are required to assimilate or code switch or basically conform to the white way. So no one really benefits with that. And so white people have this false sense of progress. People of color are suffering. And in many cases, it's all done in the name of the gospel. And, you know, all right. So just to unpack, because you use the phrase white normativity. So mm-hmm. help us understand what that is. Paint us a picture. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty much any aspect you could take a look at in a Christian organization is going to have culture all over it. It could be mentoring. It could be what time the service starts, what time the service ends, the preaching style, the the mentoring style, the evangelism style. I mean, everything has culture all over it. And so if you are in a white normative environment, it is the ways of doing those things that appeal to white Christians. If that's the way it's run, then that's why. All right. What about you, Christina? What's some of the magic that you felt important to dispel. So the one that stands out to me, though, I think is probably the magic of a cross-racial relationships and friendships. Mm. This idea that if we can just get people together around the the table Mm. for coffee or we can have a meal together, that that is going to be what is going to create a sense of understanding around injustice and a a joined pursuit of equity together. (laughs) And we have seen this work out sometimes in ways that are just the opposite that the friendship or the relationship can then be used as the excuse to not dig deeper, to not do the work of self-examination, right? So you get into the tropes of like, you know, I've got a really great Black friend. (laughs) So that can become what is then used to prevent people from really leaning in and doing this kind of self-evaluation work and the necessary work to resist racism, not just in our ideology and thinking, but the way that it shows up in our practices, right? And the way that it provides privileges for some and marginalizations for others. And so I think that idea that that magic of let's just be friends. I would like equity. I would like a place where mm-hmm. my daughters are, are treated kindly. I, that's what I'm trying to move towards, mm-hmm. right? As we lock arms and we do justice, right? Together, it's not so much that I need a, a long list of new white friends. Um, mm-hmm. and, with, and with that being said, that's not me saying a rejection of white people by any means, but I think that framework that let's just be buddies and that's going to deal with the issues of racism 
racism is problematic. And that is longstanding magical thinking. Oftentimes in these conversations, it seems like people fall into the extremes of never or always. And neither of those perspectives reflect a skill or an artful way of being. And so, you know, what's the role of that? And even just wisdom in the way that we approach these complicated topics where oftentimes people want sound bites, you know, tweets and gotcha moments. Like, why is that not sufficient for a conversation in a practice? Because it's not just talking, right? It's from talk to systemic change. Like, how important is wisdom in the context of that? Yeah, I mean, Hmm. I think wisdom makes the difference between cancel culture and accountability culture. You know, wisdom, Mm. wisdom makes the difference Mm -hmm. between when to speak and when not to speak. And it's one of the things that, you know, in the book of James, it talks about how we can pray for wisdom and we don't have to worry about feeling insecure or ashamed to ask for more wisdom. And God just pours it out and pours out in abundance. And so I think in this work that we're talking about of confronting racism, naming it for what it is and actively working to remove it brick by brick to dismantle it, it's going to require just a ton of wisdom to do that, a ton of patience, a ton of honesty about our own selves, our own biases, right? Our own triggers, our own racial trauma, our own limited resources to to show up and do the work. And then we obviously have a multidisciplinary approach to this book. We're we're using quantitative research and historical analysis, theology, biblical study, the prayer and mindfulness, all that's in this book. And at the end of the day, if the Holy Ghost... use the King James language of my traditional black church. If the Holy Spirit is not at work doing what only the spirit can do, which is to soften a hard heart, which is to heal from brokenness, to give us beauty for ashes, then it's not going to happen. And so it takes wisdom, I think, to know that and to really desperately rely on it. We are desperately relying on God at work in God's church. I love the centrality of scripture in this work in terms of helping us think about these concepts and really lean into the work of God. It's almost like the picture that's drawn in Ephesians 2 of tearing down the wall. And this is an incredible way that you guys break that down of, you know, the first half of the chapter being the vertical and the second half being the horizontal. And that all of it is biblical, right? Like all of it is the vision that God has in store. And the thing is, too, and knowing a little bit about you both is that this book is really an expression of what you've been committed to. And so, Chad, I'd like to kind of rewind back. You know, you talked about these stages, right, from like un- mm-hmm. unawareness to fumbling through and having well-meaning, but not the most helpful approach to what you're doing now. And so share with us a little bit what you're up to and how this book kind of connects to that work. So phase two is, again, that unity kind of diversity is the solution focus. And then phase three is just the more that I was listening to real stories of real people in these situations and the pain that was there. And then also just seeing how diversity, when it's done wrong, false sense of progress, you know, which is worse, no solution or a bad Mm -hmm. solution. And I think oftentimes a bad solution is worse than no solution because we're spending energy on things that aren't going to help. And we have a false sense of making progress and doing the right thing. And so after a lot of failure and experiences began to transition more to focusing on justice, particularly, and the various components of that. And as a part of that journey, again, back in scripture, looking again at, you know, is justice a major emphasis in the Bible? And, 
you know, we impact that some in the book. I believe it really is from Genesis to Revelation. It's a major emphasis, not just on how we individually operate with one another, but what about systems and structures and the kind of experiences, both positive and negative that they afford people in societies. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. So through great relationships, mentoring, excellent books, lots of experiences, all those things, about 10 years ago is really when we began to start focus more on justice work. And so as a part of that is things like power sharing. And, you know, what is really going on in organizations? Who's really calling the shots? Is this just about assimilation and code switching? Or is this about truly biblical, integrated community where Christians are learning and stretching each other and growing? Of course, we all need to make sacrifices in multiracial spaces. We all do. But when we've got a situation where people of color are required to make far more sacrifices far more often, then that's a sign of not being a healthy biblical space. And so how do we move into this environment again, where we all have to give a little in order to make this work instead of something that's have to give a lot. We wanted to also have like really practical things that we could say in light of this, what do we need to do? And one of those is a, a, we're really excited about a brand new assessment tool. We've been working on it for a year and a half. It's probably the longest and most involved project I've ever been a part of. Just hundreds of hours put into this assessment tool based on our research, lots of input from experts around the country to try and come up with a tool that's a more kind of comprehensive biblical way of measuring progress. One of the biggest challenges we face in Christian spaces is how do we know if we're doing it right? And answering that question, I think, is one of the most important things we can do in this work. If we don't have a good target, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. So that's a big part of what the assessment's all about. So we've developed a, both an individual assessment and an organizational Ooh. assessment. So all that's on rjuc.org if you want to go uh, check so it out. wonderful. And I mean, one of the things, and again, I can't speak more highly for this book than I'm trying to now find the words is – it is really a gift to the body. So thank you for that offering. Faithful anti-racism is something that I think uh, will be in a lot of people's efforts, but it's going to really help us to make progress. And I think the church is going to be better as a result. We've been spending a lot of time on the faithful. The anti-racism part probably should stand and be defined at some point because it's a word that not many people are familiar with. And then also some who are, uh, it's kind of been one of those things that's kind of been weaponized or mischaracterized as well. So what is anti-racism and, you know, why was that such an important word to kind of frame what the book is? So when we're talking about anti-racism, we're talking about resistance to racism. When we're talking about racism, we're talking about a system that creates stratification and maintains its persistence in a society around these categories known as race. God has a, a beautiful, diverse world filled with people of different cultures and ethnic backgrounds, et cetera. The way that we think about race specifically over the last few hundred years is this construction that's really on the agenda of not just categorizing people, but stratifying people. Uh, historically, that was quite explicit. It was pretty much on the nose, you know, uh, colored only fountain, whites only fountain. And it has become today much more implicit. But we can look at just about every major measurable category in society and see the implications of racial stratification there from the criminal justice system to the healthcare system to looking at the pandemic and, and rates of death just across the board. Right. And so racism, therefore, is a system of racial stratification 
And typically it has these components in it, right? So anti-Blackness, indigenous invisibility. There is perpetual foreignness for some groups, for example, depending on what's happening in the social moment. And obviously this idea of white supremacy or white normalcy within that narrative as well. And to be anti-racist is to resist that. And I would say as a Christian anti-racist, it is to resist this principality, this sin (laughs) that attempts to go against God's design for humanity, that we are made in the image of God. There's not a hierarchy of who is made more in the image of God versus others. Mm. And that it is God's design that we see each other as each other's brother's keeper and sister's keeper. We see this very clearly stated and that racism is definitely on the agenda of the flesh, the world and the devil. It's got to be dismantled. Mm. Anti-racists believe that it's baked in And so that part makes people really anxious. But I I feel like it's easy to defend that. We can just go look at the original founding documents of the country. (laughs) And, you know, we can look at primary sources to prove that very easily. That's not propaganda. We can just read people in their own words and we can see the way in which racist ideology was at play. It was not all that was at play, but certainly was at play in the founding of even of the United States, for example. And so it's baked in. So to be an anti-racist is to resist those things that are baked in because we want to promote equity and flourishing and community for all people. One thing I would add a little bit of that last piece is just, I would just say is please allow the book to Mm. define our terminology on our terms. I mean, there is like a really concentrated effort to kind of demonize this work and to cast it as contrary to the gospel and problematic and destroying the church and destroying our country and all the things, right? So I think it's really important that Christians like me, and I've, I've been there and I've experienced this, is that we're just really careful about fear and about generalizations and allowing things to be labeled. So in the book, we talk about things being labeled, mischaracterized, and then dismissed. And we just see that so often. So if you can just put a label on it, grab a term, oh, that's fill in the blank. And that means this, and then we characterize it however we want. And then therefore it should just be dismissed and we should get rid of this. And it's just so incredibly common today, everywhere. But that has been true throughout the history of the United States. So as long as there's been justice work, there has been labeling, mischaracterizing and dismissing. This is how it's fleshing out in our generation. But don't fall for it. Stick with what the scripture says. Think deeply about these things and don't just run from it because it sounds scary. Because I think one of your great questions at the start about why are white Christians less motivated to address racial injustice? I think oftentimes at the core of that is fear. And they don't even know why. It's not even like a conscious, like, I've, I've really researched this or whatever. It just mm. sounds scary. I know this is a part of some evil agenda. And so they're hearing things from people. They're hearing things from media sources, all that. And so they've got this perception that I know this is just evil and I need to run from it. I'm just challenging listeners, if you're in that camp or if you're working people on that camp, mm. dig deeper. Like, dig deeper. Like, go beyond these kind of trite, you know, characterizations of things and really, you know, take a look at what's really going on there and how that relates to scripture. I think we both believe that being a Christian needs to show up in some in some kind of way. Like it, it, need, it needs to mean something. Mm. And, and obviously that doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're certainly far from it. But I've just appreciated that we see this as an opportunity to point people to Jesus and that Jesus is great and worthy and beautiful and gracious to us and still working with us. Even when Chad tells the story about kind of where he was at one point and he was kind of like an embodiment of some of the, <laughs> some of the data in some ways, right? He was like the embodied data. And it is to God's kindness this in grace and mercy, right? That the Lord continues to reveal and show us things like constantly opening our eyes. And, and the fact that I can still laugh 
when I've got a whole host of stories that are not mm-hmm. funny. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that yeah. is to God's grace and kindness and mercy, uh, allowing mm-hmm. us to do this work together. Christina and Chad have written a helpful book that not only challenges what we may think about racism, but also challenges us to act against racism in our world today. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, and Jade Gustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. Also want to thank Mike and Nicole for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.